The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He's another one of our literary comets, writing many of the poems that made him famous while still a teenager and dying before he reached the age of 40. But unlike the 19th century, where tuberculosis seems to have ended the lives of so many great writers at such a young age, his was the 20th century paradigm, a long and stormy relationship with alcohol that seems to have done him in. He survives in our minds in a few different versions. The hard drinker, the Welshman who arrived in America along with actors and singers in the mid-20th century and took this country by storm, and as a great lyrical poet, full of noisy music, but beautiful music too, and enough sense and vivid imagery that no less a critic than T.S. Eliot singled him out early on. He's become part man and part myth, but the poems are the poems, for better or worse, mostly for better, in my opinion, and at times very much so. It's an opinion shared by Scott Carter, performer, television producer, and longtime Dylan Thomas aficionado. He joins us for a discussion of Thomas and his works today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. One of the most famous Dylan Thomas poems. One of the most famous 20th century poems. One of the most famous villanelles ever written. Thomas was born in Wales in October of 1914. He was a famous poet in his lifetime. As we know, that's not always the case with poets. Sometimes it takes a few decades for readers and the public to catch up. Not so with Dylan. He was famous in critical and literary circles almost as soon as he was an adult. Then he started recording broadcasts for the BBC, which gave him a wider audience in the 1940s, and then in the final few years of his life, for about three years, in fact, he went to New York City and became famous in America as a kind of storytelling and poem-singing bard, a man who drank hard at the White Horse Tavern in Manhattan, but also who recorded albums of poetry that were popular and who traveled around the country to large and appreciative crowds. He wrote a play under Milk Wood and a story for the radio, A Child's Christmas in Wales, and another one called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog. Critics argue about how good he is, how essential what he actually means for literature, but the public has never been too much too bothered by that. He was popular, he is popular, and he has that rare distinction of being the favorite poet of a lot of people who don't otherwise read much poetry. Something about his poems cut through to people. Maybe it's because... They're musical, which resonates, or maybe because he's willing to be raw and open and exposed, which they appreciate, which is not to say he's simple or straightforward or uninventive. He's much more of a thinker and a writer and a language maven than that. 
Maybe we should put it this way. In a century where we have a lot of slashes and adjectives, a professor slash poet, a, a poet slash social reformer, an entertainer slash poet, he comes across as a poet. Something pure and true about his devotion to poetry. The word poet expands in the example of Dylan Thomas to include all those other words as we imagine that it did for the great poets of old, from Homer to Sappho, Levi to Keats. Celebrity? Yes, okay. Welshman? Yes, well, sure. But poet with a capital... Yes, that's a yes in all caps. A yes above all. Poet. Scott Carter has been reading Dylan Thomas and visiting Thomas's haunts for several decades, he joins us to explore why that is and what he's gained from that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again is friend of the show, Scott Carter, who's been here for episodes on Charles Dickens, Leo Tolstoy, Thomas Jefferson, and of course, Oscar Wilde. Scott is a television producer currently working on Back on the Record with Bob Costas on HBO and Love and Respect with Killer Mike on PBS and Revolt TV. Scott's also been a performer and a playwright, and he's here today to discuss Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Scott Carter, welcome back to the History of Literature. Well, not only thank you, but also I see that I have moved up in my rankings to friend of show, <laughs> and, and so I, I feel quite honored to be here. Well, the five-timer club is a pretty—you're in pretty rare company. <laughs> okay, so Dylan Thomas, where were you in life when you discovered— Dylan Thomas. I was 15. Mm. And so I was in high school and I was active in speech tournaments. I don't know if they still have them, yeah. but, but there was not only debate, which was where we, uh, my high school competed against all other high schools in the state of Arizona, where I grew up. I was raised in Tucson, 
But also there were other categories. There was humorous reading and there was poetry and there was dramatic reading and there was oratory. And my brothers and I, I have an older brother and two younger brothers, and we were all active in speech tournaments. And so I had won in my freshman year, I had won first in the state in humorous reading. And for my sophomore year, I decided that I would extend from also continuing to do humorous reading. But since you could do two, I want to do dramatic reading. So I started looking for a play and I found a play by Sidney Michaels called Dylan, mm. which a year or so before Alec Guinness, who was then in his 50s, played Dylan Thomas at 39, which <laughs> Alec Guinness <laughs> at, in his 50s probably looked like Dylan Thomas at 39. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and so I came across both parts of him at the same time because the play had numerous excerpts, uh, excerpts from his poetry. But you also got this arc of his life. So there's this notion of Welsh poet, angelic looking when he's young, and then, and then he's just going to be a drinker and he's going to become uh, bloated and he's going to become this sort of doomed romantic character. Yeah. Uh, he becomes a performer on the BBC and he has this extraordinary voice. Mm. And then because he needs money, he starts getting offers to tour America uh, and lecture, uh, mostly at colleges, but also uh, at other places. And so these lecture tours became the chaotic and uh, triumphant end to his life because he could not say no to a party. He could not say no. He couldn't say no to anybody about anything. And, mm -hmm. and so his, um, and so these lectures were both, uh, outlandish to many and charming to many more. And so, so this legend grows. Here's one of the stories that's a, that's a legend is that he supposedly came out on stage, um, at one college and thought it was an audience full of stuffed shirts. So he goes over to a potted plant, takes out his penis and begins urinating hmm. at which case two thirds of the audience storms out of the place. And then he finishes his personal act and uh, hmm. buttons up his fly and turns to the audience and says, now these are the people I wish to read to. <laughs> now, I don't think that's true, but it's not far yeah. from how he was. And then the legend is uh, at the age of 39, right after he has debuted his only full length work under Milkwood, he goes to the White Horse Tavern, which he used to frequent in uh, New York City and downs 18 straight whiskeys and then lapses into a coma and dies at 39. Right. And I heard that he had said, I just drank 18 whiskeys. I set the record. Yeah. Yeah. Or I think that's the record. <laughs> and in and in the play, uh, the, the picture that was in the uh, printed script of Dylan by Sidney Michaels had Alec Guinness forming a pyramid mm. of shot glasses and then downing them all. Yeah. in succession and then blacking out. Right. Now, in that description of your coming to him, it almost seems like you were so drawn to this figure. He could have been a painter. He could have been a comedian. He could, how important was it to you that he was a poet? Oh, not important at all. Yeah. It was It was that he was fitting into what I needed for a dramatic reading. And then 
the end of, of the first part of the story is that not only in the first state tournament of the year did I win another first in humorous reading, but I won first in dramatic reading for doing this uh, selection from Dylan. And then my older brother won first in oratory and my high school, which was the which it was fairly new triumphed and won the state championship over more established Tucson high that was that was year after year they were the winners and we were the we were the underdogs <laughs> that upset them so right. it all worked out uh great for me and and started just this lifelong interest in him because then I started getting further into his work, into the collected poems, and then started getting into the novella uh, Child's Christmas in Wells, the full-length work Under Milkwood. And um, and then I've, he's someone who I've always stayed in touch with throughout my life. I've often come back to his poems if there's a new uh, movie or a special, or there was a, about uh, 20 years ago, there was a new version of Under Milkwood that was produced by George Martin with Anthony Hopkins, who's also Welsh, performing the first voice. And uh, and then all these different people, Tom Jones, uh, Mary Hopkins, uh, Alan Bennett, all these other people played the different characters. And before that, there had been a movie version of Under Milkwood with the first two vo the vo the two voices, uh, Richard Burton uh, and Peter O'Toole, and then also Elizabeth Taylor was in it and a lot of other outstanding British actors. And uh, so he's always this kind of figure of interest. Yeah. And did he, would you say that he awakened in you an appreciation for poetry or would you say that was something you were getting anyway as you grew up and, and started to experience his poems? I confess that that I I am still a stranger in general to the poetic form. Yeah. I I only am a Dylan Thomas fan and a William Shakespeare fan and then <laughs> actually through Dylan Thomas I've gotten into WH Auden but that's kind of where it's it it stops there. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's not where I I don't go to poetry for leisure reading and uh I'll often go to nonfiction or I will go to novels. I, and I've only lately discovered short stories as a wonderful form, and I've become obsessed on contemporary and uh, historic short story writers. Right. So, so my interest in him did not extend to other poets, but I think, like Shakespeare, there is a sense of ornate lyricism in his writing that he is not. I mean, very often when I'll be leafing through the New Yorker and I'll see some contemporary poem, it will all be in lowercase, none of it rhymes, it's not in a meter. And that's not Shakespeare, nor is it Dylan Thomas. And I think maybe Dylan Thomas was the last, maybe what Bruce Springsteen was to rock and roll, Dylan Thomas was to to lyric poetry, because very often the poems rhyme, and, and very often they were in meter. Right. And he was getting criticized by the Philip Larkins and the Kingsley Amoses of the world pretty quickly after, I mean, they were quick to to try to move things into a new tradition and and say we've had enough of this pseudo romanticism and and kind of that but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later i'm interested in in your chasing him so to speak through through the streets of new york or i understand you went to wales as well i in 1976 i went to wales and in order to get to the little village where he lived which is Larn, which is one syllable, but it's spelled like it's 20 syllables. Um, <laughs> it's L-A-U-G-H-A-R-N-E, Larn, a tiny village. And um, so I'm there in 1976, which is just, uh, it's 20 years after he's died. 
and it's not commercialized at all. Mm. And in order to get there, the the connecting village by which you get the the bus to, or in those days got the bus to Larne, was Carmarthen. Mm. What a beautiful city name, and 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 it's and it's perfect for him because he just seems to be this. I mean, yes, he was intoxicated most uh, a lot of his life, but when he wasn't intoxicated, he was intoxicating. And I visited, I saw the boathouse where he lived. Yeah. And you go up a cliff and around the cliff at the mouth of this cove is a shed. And it was just there. It was, it was not, I mean, now I, the boathouse is a museum and now the shed has a plaque outside of it and it's roped off and all that kind of thing. Well, nothing was like that at the time. And so you look into this shed and it's this tiny place where he has a window overlooking the cove. And then he has a couple of slabs of wood that are his desk. And he had to the left of the window, a picture of DH Lawrence and to the right of the window, a picture of WH Auden. Mm. Those, those are the two people, the two writers that he wanted to have in his mind as he wrote. And there is a book called The Notebooks of Dylan Thomas, where it talks about how he actually wrote. And he describes taking out uh, on a scrap of paper, writing on both sides of the paper and just letting his unconscious flow out mm. in words. And then over a period of time, it's almost like he's doing a jigsaw puzzle piece by piece and all the pieces are words. And then he's seeing this piece fits into this piece. Yeah. And, and over a period of time, the poem is organically, it's like a cell attracts another cell and, and it becomes a multi-cell. He goes from being an amoeba to being a, a full human. And that's what's happening with the poems. And I read at one point that to the, when he's, got away from pencil and pen writing. And the next stage was going to be writing. Well, he's still with a pen, but he's writing on a formal sheet of paper that he would write the poem down. And as soon as he got to a place where he thought there should be a change, he would start over again on a new piece of paper. He's rewriting everything that he's written so far with the one new change and keeps going until there's going to be another change. Then you're going to go to a third paper and that he would have dozens and dozens and dozens of paper for some of his longer, more famous poems. Mm. What do you make of his... I've seen The Boathouse in in a video, documentaries that I've seen of him. It is a stunning place to be. And yet my understanding is he only wrote six poems there for all the time that he was there. And he seems to have written most of his poems when he was 19 or 20 years old in in his parents' house in this bedroom that didn't have much of a view. I've seen that on the video as well. But I'm wondering what was blocking him or was, was he raising his standards? Why did he slow down so much as he got older even though he was still as devoted to his craft, I mean, he was there in the room writing, but did he, did he have some view now that now that he was famous and everyone knew what he could do, that it was harder for him to produce? I think that his process was so tedious, Mm. so painstaking that I think when he got to four or five o'clock in the afternoon, he's got to go to Brown's hotel and start drinking. Mm. I, I think that I think that that he's tapping so much into his subconscious. Uh, I think he mentioned Freud as one of his 
main influences in, in one interview. Um, there's a biography by a man named Andrew Sinclair, and the name of the biography is No Man More Magical. Mm. And uh, <laughs> that's how I, I, I think of him. And, and when I was 15, this was a tremendously romantic notion of life, which for all I knew might become mine. Mm, yeah. And so my notion of him has become much more complicated as I've gotten older. So for instance, when I was 15 and I first read about his life in this play by Sidney Michaels that had been on Broadway and I think also in London, there seemed a charm in his irresponsibility that he's the coddled genius for whom all exceptions are made. Mm. And at another point in my life, I I actually wanted to become an adult. I, I wanted to <laughs> assume the responsibilities of marriage or fatherhood or employment. And I didn't, I mean, there's a, in uh, one of the books that the play Dylan is based upon is a book by the man who, who was a poet and a professor, but also then became his sort of tour manager offering uh, him the chance to come to America and then organizing the lectures for him. And this was a man named John Malcolm Brennan. And he wrote this book after Thomas died called Dylan Thomas in America that is this long, exhaustive, exhausting account of these tours of America that eventually led to Thomas's death. And there are stories like, for instance, he would be at the, at the White Horse or some other tavern because he was always, he was going to be drinking all the time. When he was settling the bill, he would just take whatever bills and coins he had in his pocket, put them on the bar and then ask the bartender to be honest and subtract. But in <laughs> other words, he never learned American currency. Uh, well, well, there's a, there's an age, I, I guess, where that sort of thing is charming. And then there's another age where it becomes appalling. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here is, which is kind of the, you could kind of say the same thing for drinking as well, I think. I mean, you know, who wants to to vomit and who wants to show up being the person who can't find their way to the car and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But but I think this was also a different era where I think, I mean, I mean, you look at, at Mad Men and there's a very different attitude towards both alcohol and smoking, which he also did. Yeah. Or uh, Dean Martin is, you know, he's he's funny. He's the funny drunk. We wouldn't have that kind of character now. Right. Right. And and so um, there there's a great uh, line that Richard Burton had about Thomas and Burton was a drinking companion of his and said that before the third drink, Thomas would be morose. And after the eighth drink, he got rambunctious. <laughs> but between the third and the eighth, he was the most entertaining person to be drinking with. Yeah. He, one of the things you said about his drinking and about his sort of writing process made me curious or it struck me. I think a lot of people, when they hear the story, and maybe if they want to be a Dylan Thomas or be an artistic person, they would start with the drinking and say, I'm like him. I'm not going to follow rules. I'm not going to play by your your rules of conventionality. And in fact, I'm artistic and I'm going to get drunk so I can see things or I'm going to take drugs so I can have these visions or something. But the way you put it was different, which is almost like he was going to the other side and returning with news and visions from what he had seen there. But that process was what led him to drinking because he wasn't strong enough to 
make that just a part of his daily life, but it was taking so much out of him that he was turning to drinking for comfort or or just to to rebalance himself afterwards. Yeah, I, I think that in those days, I think drinking was every artist's second job. Mm. And mm-hmm. and I and and I think that for for many people that there's that sense of you have to do this if you're going to do great work. And the notion of someone like John Cheever getting up every day, putting on a suit, putting on a tie, putting a fedora on his head, and then walking down to his basement where he worked and putting the hat on a hat rack <laughs> and getting to work as a working uh, writer of short stories, novels, poetry, whatever, that is so less appealing. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. One more question before we turn to his poems. Okay. Although you weren't styling yourself as a poet, you did have a stretch where you were a performer and you were on stage. And Dylan Thomas, as you mentioned, was famous on this American tour. And he was, uh, you know, he had these spoken word albums and people loved hearing him deliver these poems. And I've heard that he actually put on more of a declamatory style in America than he did when he was reading them in Wales or the UK, that he he must have sensed that Americans were picking up on him as this bardic voice or this prophet who was delivering probably a almost Richard Burton-like performance of them. Did his performing affect you at all in terms of what you wanted to do? Did you hear the stories of him going on tour and think that you could see yourself on stage and continue that speech giving and that you had started in high school? No, I think uh, that I I was never that person. I was, mm. I was never the, let me, I can't go on stage yet. I haven't had uh, enough to drink. I was never that person. If anything, I was I was too self-conscious, which is why I was never a great stand-up and later, um, but it's also why I became a very, very good uh, television producer because I was always keeping my eye on the big picture. Hmm. I knew a lot of people who had that kind of self-destructive impulse. Sam Kennison uh, was a friend of mine. And and then in the shows that I've produced, I've dealt with some of these people who who have a lot of youthful fans. And I can, the two names who come to mind are John Lydon, who was Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, mm. or Hunter S. Thompson. And my experiences with them did, did not endear them to me, mm. nor think I had made a mistake in my career in trying to be an adult and, uh, and be responsible. Yeah. I actually had an instance with Hunter S. Thompson, where he actually kicked me to the ground. <laughs> and it, it was in oh, Aspen, no. <laughs> Aspen, Colorado. And we were doing a live presentation of Politically Incorrect for a comedy festival hosted by HBO. <sighs> and we had the four guests on the panel. I think it was Sandra Bernhardt, Ariana Huffington. I forget who the third person was. And then Hunter S. Thompson. And we're going to start, let's say it was an afternoon. It was going to be three o'clock or four o'clock. He arrives at five minutes of three and he's completely drunk. And he says, I need to get to a television for the basketball game. And I thought, oh, well, the basketball game's about to end and he wants to catch the end of it. No, the basketball game had not yet started. He, <laughs> and he came with a six foot cardboard cutout of a Native American that he wanted to place on stage next to him. And he had a full uh, bourbon and uh, on, on the rocks that he was drinking from. 
And, uh, and he was just, and he was terrible. He was incoherent. He was, uh, there was nothing charming or eloquent or wonderful about him. And then afterwards I had a, a young female friend in Aspen who also was a friend of his. And when he saw me talking to her after the show was over and that she wasn't talking to him, she was talking to me. He put his boot in the small of my back and pushed forward so that I, w I landed on the floor. Uh, and then uh, a few months later, he, we booked him on Politically Incorrect to be on the panel in Los Angeles. And when he was going to arrive, I wore my cowboy boots that day. And and then, of course, he didn't show up. <laughs> well, Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, you were probably somewhat prepared for a character like that based on your experience immersing yourself in the life of Dylan Thomas. It made me think, you know, if Dylan Thomas had lived, he might have been someone you booked on politically incorrect and you might have had a similar uh, <laughs> a similar moment with with him. You be well, careful. Well, well, we don't, we don't know. So for instance, when you have people like Hank Williams who dies at 29 mm. or Charlie Parker or James Dean or Jim Morrison who dies at 27, there, there is the sense that, um, we'll never see them bloated and boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas Marlon Brando, Orson Welles, Elvis, uh, Jack Kerouac, they lived mm. long enough to outgrow their the beauty of their youthful rebellion. Yeah, right. I mean, the, the last, I remember reading before he died, there was a piece in Esquire. I think he died in 1964. And I remember when I said, in high school, probably around the same time that I started getting interested in Dylan Thomas, reading this profile of Jack Kerouac and he's living with his mom mm. and he's drinking, he's in a t-shirt drinking Budweiser all day watching television. Yeah. Well, uh, that's cell I'm, paradise. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a quick break and let's come back and then we'll dive into the poems of Dylan Thomas that have resonated with you the most. Okay, we are back. So, Dylan Thomas, we heard about his life. We heard about uh, what it meant to you as someone who was coming out of high school and starting your own journey. And I'm interested, which of his poems in particular have resonated with you throughout the years? Well, one of them, and probably the, the, the shortest of the ones that interest me, is called 24 Years. It's very brief. Uh, and it speaks to all that I wanted him to be when I was 15 up until the time I was maybe 25. Yeah. It's kind of transgressive. It's, it's got some of that language in it. Would you like to read it for us? Yes, I would be delighted. So this is 24 years by Dylan Thomas. 
24 years remind the tears of my eyes. Bury the dead for fear that they walk to the grave in labor. In the groin of the natural doorway, I crouched like a tailor, sewing a shroud for a journey by the light of the meat-eating sun. Dressed to die, the sensual strut begun, with my red veins full of money in the final direction of the elementary town, I advance as long as forever is. Mm. And I remember hearing David Hemmings, the star of Blow Up, Antonioni's masterpiece, on a talk show. And he, I think he was Welsh. And if I think if you're Welsh and a performer, yeah. you are required to memorize the, the collected <laughs> works of Dylan Thomas. <laughs> right. So like Michael Sheen, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Richard Burton. I mean, these people would recite Thomas at the drop of a hat. And I remember David Hemmings being on a talk show, I think it was David Frost, and choosing this spontaneously to recite mm. and thought to myself, well, I get it. Because, And then when you're young, it's, well, of course, life is only an opportunity and you're advancing as far as forever is and everything is up. And it's that part of him that I find myself it speaks to me less now mm. like do not go gentle into that good night which is by far his most famous poem speaks to me less the older i get and the night bids <laughs> me into it whether i go gentle <laughs> or not and 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 also but it's also that to me that's a, it's a little bit of an adolescent notion this notion of rage rage against the dying of the light right what 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 that presupposes is that there is nothing to be gained by advancing maturity and advancing knowledge. And it's like, this is like a Springsteen song. It's like glory days where the height was maybe when you were 17 or 18 and you were on the football team or the baseball team and you had a girlfriend and you just now could legally drink. Right. And that that's the top of life. And everything is this, is this downhill is this descent from there. And I feel like that must have been something of Dylan Thomas's worldview because it's how he lived. Yeah. As a young man, and you're, you're right. I mean, one of the things, and maybe it was a curse in his life, he becomes famous instantly. Uh, he's, he's famous at 20. Yeah. And his first book, I think there's one 13 poems and one 18 poems and those form, uh, th those are the greatest hits. Yeah. And a lot of what he would then perform on stage. Just one side note for two seconds of the Cadman. He did 11 different albums, but there's one called an evening with Dylan Thomas. And you really get the full Dylan Thomas. You get him stumbling on to the stage. You can hear him. He's got his books on the lectern. So you can hear them brush against the, the microphone and some fall to the ground and he curses them. And then you can just hear him being the entertainer the clown for the crowd. And then, as you mentioned, he did have this kind of stately style of reciting, which I think does not seem as contemporary to us. And there's this dichotomy between the stateliness of his presentation. Some people compared it to Pablo Casals playing the cello and then how he is when he's just talking and he's being a very charming comedian. Yeah. I want to return to this idea of raging against the dying of the light, because it does seem like a young person's idea of what an older person 
should do and is giving up if they don't fill their days with as much activity as possible and as much living and as much loving and as much, you know, everything as they can until the very end. And I'm thinking of uh, someone like George Harrison, who had this death scene that was described by his widow. And she said that after he died, and they had known it was coming for a long time, he had cancer and everything. Mm -hmm. And she described the room as filling with a kind of glow, like a, a, a light. And everyone felt like George had been preparing for this moment, and he was fulfilling it. What he had always wanted was this passage into the next life. And it, it kind of makes me think, you know, should he have been raging against the dying of the light? Or should he have been preparing himself, uh, readying for death, accepting it, coming to peace with it? You know, there those are all things that, that maybe a young person might not see, but the older you get, maybe becomes more of a, you know, it's not just, it's not just sitting on the couch and giving up. It's, there's, there's another way to be proactive about death that doesn't involve, you know, stay out as late as you can at the pub and, and go have love affairs or whatever it was that, that would be raging. And even in George's lyrics, keep me free from birth. Mm, Yeah. You know, there's, there's the notion that if I do this life correctly, that I'm going to be spared having to go through an existence again. I will get to nirvana. And there's also the notion that what you're seeking to do, and my personal metaphor is always a rocket ship going up. NASA has these enormous rocket ships, but by time it's going to land back on Earth, it's a tiny capsule. And what's happening over a period of time is you need these big boosters to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. But once you get past that, you're you're jettisoning off. You are letting go mm. of these big cumbersome parts of the spaceship. And you're getting down to that essential little capsule in which the astronaut or, or pairs of astronauts reside. And I and I think that's George used to talk about I think he would talk about it, and I think it's in some songs. I can't get the exact lyric right now where you're moving past desire as you get older. The desire makes you a prisoner. You are, you are a slave to it. And one of the goals of approaching the path that George was on is escaping the, the pettiness of the ego that, that enslaves one until one sees life more clearly. Okay, let's move to the next poem. Do you have another one for us? <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the next one I want to read is one that he often used when to close out his lectures, and, and he would start off, well, first he'd start off being funny and just charm the crowd. Then he would start reading poems by other people. And what he'd say is, I'm going to read poems by others, and then slowly I will descend into my own. And so he would maybe conclude with four or five of his own, but often he would conclude with In My Craft or Sullen Art. Yeah. So let, let me read this. This is In My Craft or Sullen Art by Dylan Thomas. In My Craft or Sullen Art exercised in the still night when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms i labor by singing light not for ambition or bread or the strut and trade of charms on the ivory stages but for the common wages of their most secret heart 
Not for the proud man, apart from the raging moon, I write on these spindthrift pages, nor for the towering dead with their nightingales and psalms, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my craft or art. And I love the image of he's solitary at night, and he didn't drink and write. He would only write sober, is my understanding. So he's there by singing candlelight, but he's writing for people who are two people in bed, and they are working out the joy or grief of their lives. He's writing for them, and he knows they're never going to read what he's working on by himself. And it also echoes to me one of my other favorite poems of his, and death shall have no dominion, a phrase he repeats often throughout the poem. One of the lines is, though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. Mm, right. Those lovers in bed in the in my craft for solid art, and their griefs in their arms. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a beautiful image beautiful it's melancholy it's it's tragic it's also i find it kind of hopeful in a strange sense just in the in the idea that even though life is hard and people work hard that people are able to find one another and have this and be together and that's all true and he the poet has a noble motivation because the, the people who are inspiring his art are those least likely to appreciate it, to, to seek it out. But he's doing it anyway. Yeah. And he's saying they don't need nightingales. They don't need psalms. They don't need grand imagery. They need truth, connection, just plain, common language and images for them. Yeah. And it's interesting you you see that because... One of the things as you, if I, when I got the collected works and you're making your way through the poems that are famous and not famous, you're making your way through them and some of them defy uh, clear interpretations. But over time, I think for fans of his, there is a sense that, that the music is the message, mm. that the sounds of his poetry are the substance. And he has, and as I began to get deeper into him, so he's got, you know, these poems with incredible titles that demand that you read them. If I were tickled by the rub of love, or shall gods <laughs> be said to thump the clouds, or if my head hurt a hare's foot, or another one, not so funny, but a process in the weather of the heart, or who could not read, once you see the title, a refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in London. Mm. He's very conscious of respecting the reader, I think. Mm. Uh -huh. He's not merely just expressing what's going on inside of him. He has an impulse to be entertaining, which is which also ultimately was part of his downfall. Yeah, I get that. I get where he, even though in a lot of his poems, he's like a prophet. He's like somebody who is, has traveled to the other side and has come back to deliver us some serious news, almost like a, like he's Elijah or something. But he does not insult the reader. He assumes that the reader is as smart as he is. Right. And, and he wants their attention and he wants their approval. Mm. And I think that 
it's interesting that you use the term prophet because part of the appeal uh, for me, part of what I first got out of him was he's a prophet from the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that he's that he's so for instance in these cat these 11 Cadman recordings that he made on one of them he's reading from King Lear and on the other side he's reading from John Webster's The Duchess of Malfi and so he does these readings of Lear and he's got the voice of the fool he's got the voice of Lear and it's like those works are contemporary to him and even as he read poetry, he had a great sense of what poems were being written by his contemporaries at that moment. But he also went back to the to the first mists mm, of yeah. time of of recorded language. He he could be hailing from Stonehenge, <laughs> you know. Or another one more image that I that I have of him sometimes is the final image of two thousand one where we see the star baby with those enormous eyes gazing. And I feel like those are the eyes with which Thomas saw the world. Mm, Yeah. It does seem like it's very appropriate that Bob Dylan took his name from Dylan Thomas because he has that same quality of he wrote those songs that sounded like they were folk songs. They sounded like they had just emerged out of the land and the people and had been around forever. And Dylan Thomas's poems... Like Do Not Go Gentle and Death Shall Have No Dominion, they feel like they are, you know, from some oral tradition that's been handed down for centuries. Right. They have almost the stateliness of of sacred text. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And and it's interesting you mentioned Dylan because that was another draw in for me. Mm. And even when Dylan Thomas is obscure, so was psychedelic Bob Dylan or psychedelic John Lennon. They were that way also. Right. Yeah. The the rock star tradition maybe inherited whatever it was that Dylan Thomas was representing in the in the forties and fifties. It seems to have trans transposed itself less into poets, but into the troubadours and the the bards and the singer songwriters. In the movie of Terry Southern's Candy. Richard Burton plays a Dylan Thomas-like poet who's coming onto campus to read, and he, but he's Burton is dressed up like Bob Dylan, mm. the, the hair, the cigarette coming out of the lip, it, it just everything about him. It's a combination of Dylan Thomas and Bob Dylan. Yeah. I wanted to mention a quote that I've got here when we were talking about the music of Dylan, because I think that's of Dylan Thomas, because I think that's one of the biggest criticisms of him is, oh, it's he privileges sound and rhyme and meter over sense sometimes. And here's a quote I've got from Robert Lowell, who wrote, uh, quote, nothing could be more wrongheaded than the English disputes about Dylan Thomas's greatness. He is a dazzling, obscure writer who can be enjoyed without understanding. Oh, I think that's perfect. And that those who most love Thomas's work would agree with that. Yeah, there's this famous, I almost hate to repeat it because Paul McCartney has repeated it so often, but there's a, the famous uh, anecdote that he always tells about when he was writing Hey Jude, and he, he got to the line, the movement you need is on your shoulder, and he was singing it to John Lennon, and he said, oh, I'll fix that. And John Lennon said, what do you mean, fix that? And and Paul said, well, that's just what came out, that I know it means nothing, I'll just, I'll I'll fix it later. And John Lennon said, I know what it means, you're, you're not going to fix that, that's the best line in it. 
very <laughs> often that was the contribution that Lenin yeah. made to the maturation of McCartney right. was, was encouraging Cart- McCartney to go with what his subconscious was producing yeah, <laughs> right? right? rather than, than McCartney, the editor was going to, was going to strike out. Which is a beat poet thing too. Kerouac used to say first thought, best thought. And he would, he would constantly catch his friends who, after they revised something and he would say, what was that before you revised it? And they would tell him and he would say, don't you hear that? That's better. You just, yeah. you, you took the life out of it with your revision. He would have this sense that that's what they had been doing when they were, were pouring on it. I mean, that is another great inheritor of uh, the Dylan Thomas tradition is Allen Ginsberg. I mean, you can kind of see Dylan Thomas running all through his work. And then but, you can see Ginsberg into Dylan, Bob Dylan. Right, right. Okay. But I wanted to give you a chance to give us a third poem for us to discuss. The third poem is my favorite of his, and it's called Fern Hill, and it refers to the his grandparents' farm where he would often spend summers. Hmm. And even in the times when he was writing his most famous poems, when he was very, very young, he was already looking back. And there is a quote in one of the biographies about him where he, with a stunning and surprising note of self-awareness, said, the one thing worse than a terrible childhood is a too wonderful childhood. Mm. <laughs> so, and that, and that's what, so that's what this, this poem is about. Yeah. He's, he's a young man looking back to, yeah, but it was great when I was nine, then yeah. it was perfect. And supposedly also he kept in his wallet, the folded up, uh, scrap of newspaper that when he was 12, he won a race. And he was a frail youth. He was coddled. And so for the fact that he had this unusual demonstration of physical prowess once and probably the only (laughs) time in his life. And when he's drinking with Burton or others, he's taking the the little (laughs) newspaper clipping out showing them that he had won a race once. And And there's one more brief story that Burton talks about where one time he's with another poet, Thomas and Burton, the three of them, and they're drinking. So it's probably between the third and the eighth drink that this story comes from. And Dylan Thomas asks the other two to recite the poem that they think is most profound, that they've memorized. And so both of them do it. And then they say to him, well, what's your choice? And he said, well, the best poem in the English language. And then they said he did this very seriously and slowly. I am thou art. He, she, it is. We are you are, they are. So he's conjugating the verb to be <laughs> right. an affirmation of existence. Yeah. And he's saying that's the greatest, most profound poem that has ever been written. There in getting back to Fern Hill, the Dylan Thomas in this poem, it's it's a hugely popular poem and especially in Wales. And I see and hear the Dylan Thomas that reminds me of the Dylan Thomas of the Child's Christmas in Wales as well. In addition to this this prophet that we've been talking about, there was also a Dylan Thomas who was sort of the best neighbor you could have or the best guy to sit next to at the pub, the guy who would put his arm around you and tell you these stories and maybe could make you laugh, could make you cry, Dylan Thomas. I think that especially, I think if he's gone into a unfamiliar tavern, pub, bar, 
and bellies up to the bar, orders a drink. I think whoever's to his right or left is going to be his new best friend. Mm. Yeah, right. Ah, uh, okay. Well, this has been wonderful. I feel like I'm going to head back into the, the collected poetry of Dylan Thomas and maybe watch some of the many film versions of his life. Uh, it has really been a treat to talk to you about him. Scott Carter, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. You are very welcome, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that excellent? My thanks to Scott Carter for joining me for that conversation. And of course, my thanks to Dylan Thomas for putting it all into motion. I love the idea of a young man sitting alone in an unassuming little room in an undistinguished little house at a humble table writing away in his notebook. Maybe that young man or that young woman is you, and maybe we'll be reading your lines someday. Let's hope. In the meantime, put down your pen. My goodness, you can't write all the time. You need to take a few breaks. And your fingers need to be free to push subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any History of Literature podcast episodes coming up in the future. I can't tell you that Dylan Thomas listened to the History of Literature podcast, but I can tell you this. 100% of the wannabe poets of the 20th century, and going back, we can go back even further, the centuries, the millennia, of people who attempted to write poetry and who failed miserably, what did they all have in common? Not a single one of them ever subscribed to the History of Literature podcast. 0.0%. And that's a pretty large sample size with millions of examples. So, don't be among them, ye poets. Give yourselves a fighting chance. Subscribe now and let the successes pour in as you are showered with fame and glory and riches. And when you reach the, the pinnacle of your craft and your profession and the throngs of poetry lovers ask you the secret to your success, just tell them it was your old friend, Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E. And when they start pelting you with rotten vegetables and driving you down from your glorious perch atop the mountain of poetic fortune, calling you a fraud and a weasel for listening to, to Jack Wilson. Try to keep a brave face, smiling through the pain of your disgrace, and know that it is better to walk the lonely path of honesty than to live the uncourageous life of the liar with a secret and walk that lonely path all the way down that lonely hill, down into the valley of loneliness and to the abandoned end of that valley where you tumble off the lonely path and into the ditch of solitude and despair. And it is there that you shall not be lonely, because it is there that I will be, smiling and saying, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>